Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Ann Winterstrand, and I'm your host today. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Katie Gentili about her recent book, an edited set of essays written by her and other authors called The Business of Being Made, The Temporalities of Reproductive Technology. everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Ann Winterstrand, and I'm your host today. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Katie Gentili about her recent book, an edited set of essays written by her and other authors called The Business of Being Made, The Temporalities of Reproductive Technologies in Psychoanalysis and Culture. Dr. Katie Gentili is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and Director of the Gender Studies Program at John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. Along with this current book, she is author of Creating Bodies, Eating Disorders as Self-Destructive Survival, both from Rutledge. She is the editor of the Rutledge book series, Genders and Sexualities in Minds and Culture, and a co-editor of the journal Studies in Gender and Sexuality. She has published numerous articles and book chapters on eating disorders, sexual and racial cultural violence, intimate partner violence, participatory action research, and the cultural and psychic production of temporalities around reproduction and fetal personhood. She is on the faculty of New York University's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and in private practice in New York City. She is also a recording musician who has toured and plays violin with a number of bands. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Katie Gentili to our show today. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for interviewing me. It's great. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you about this book and I've had a chance to hear you speak um, at Mount Sinai a couple of weeks, I guess it was like a week and a half ago. And um, I really enjoyed the talk and had a lot of questions about the book. And I think the listeners are going to be really um, interested. So by way of introduction, I just wanted to say to our listeners that this book um, it's the first inter and transdisciplinary exploration of the complicated experience for many people of assisted reproductive technologies, which we'll be calling ARTs, right, Katie? Is that the way? Yeah, yeah, I find it, yeah, because it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful, right. (laughs) So ARTs. The book includes um, diverse voices and provides, so you contribute a number of chapters and an epilogue, but that there are other uh, clinicians and people that have, contributed to the book, um, including diverse voices, really speaking in a comprehensive way to the cultural phenomenon, which, you know, I guess in the 70s, we called sort of test tube babies. 
it's now a a huge industry um, that's that's evolved a lot. And Katie has a lot to say about that. You are positioned among the first generation of psychoanalysts to think through its meanings and implications. And the collection discusses ARTs from um, a pretty critical perspective, but I would also say that that there are other perspectives that you bring into, but I think it's fair to say that this is a this is a a really critical analysis of the role of arts in our society. Um, so could you say a little bit more just kind of to launch into the interview, how you came personally to write and edit this book? Sure. Um, well, it is critical, as you say, uh, in part critical in the um, critical, not just in the looking at it negatively, but mm-hmm. it critically as in really really trying to hold the ambivalence around these uh, technologies and the not only the technologies themselves, but the ways in which they're being implemented in the society and the culture and the context of the culture that makes these technologies so popular. So all of that, um, what I found was, was that that whole kind of um, more holistic view around ARTs wasn't being held in psychoanalytic literature Um, you know, obviously I got interested in this in part, uh, in part, I was interested in the ways in which, uh, after 9-11 in particular, it seems that the fetus had taken on a role of, uh, a celebrity as, uh, Lauren Berlant talks about it, or as, uh, uh, the public fetus, which is what Donna Haraway talked about. Um, but the fetus seemed to be a fetish object and it probably always is not just to an extent, but it really seemed to be taken up and it seemed like there was a real push for neo-domesticity around, um, in particular, uh, white women, women, uh, middle to upper class women where historically, um, there had been, a, there, there was a shift where historically, um, uh, upper class women had fewer babies, fewer children, uh, then say uh, lower class women and all of a sudden it was slipping and babies became a sign of opulence, of mm-hmm. wealth, an accessory and this all, so I was really interested in this. Also, I was going through um, uh, assistive reproductive technologies, obviously myself on some level uh, and I was, um, was a critical consumer and I was I was uh, amazed at the pushback I got from the medical establishment about being a critical consumer, mm-hmm. a critical, again, being uh, an educated consumer yeah. and asking questions and how my questions were met with scorn. And it, it felt like it was back in the 1960s or 70s when women's health care was, um, when there was a lot of feminist pushback around women's health care and how um, women weren't allowed to ask questions and um it just seemed stunning to me. Yeah. Uh, some of the words that I was hearing at clinics around, uh, you know, once the doctor has control of your body, you'll get pregnant. And this idea of um, a power struggle. And I, I was just stunned by it. And I went to psychoanalysis to figure out, like, what are the case studies around ARTs? Because mm-hmm. I know they're out there. There weren't that many of them, but they were out there. And I was stunned to find that most of the case studies were very uncritical. It was more like the cases were organized around helping the 
the patient become a more compliant right. medical consumer, not a critical medical consumer, hmm. not an enlightened uh, medical consumer. But how could we best uh, help your psyche so that you will engage with these technologies and get the baby? Right. Uh, and there was certainly no question about whether, uh, why do you want a baby? Yeah. Can we ask that question? Right. Or do we only ask it of people who don't have children? Right. Can we only question their reproductive choices? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you actually did your own research in writing this book. Yes. In terms I, of um, research subjects. Yes, yeah. I did. I realized after um, experiencing it and talking to people in general, uh, like anecdotally talking to people I knew um, who knew people or who themselves had gone through various uh, technologies, um, that there really was a lot of research, well, not a lot, but there was some pretty good critical research around uh, in medical anthropology um, and also in uh, cultural theory, in uh, feminist theory, but there was nothing within psychoanalysis. And so I did think, uh, I did uh, try to uh, do um, interview research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put a call out, uh, you know, through the, uh, the um, properly through our institutional review boards, and I advertised on a diverse websites, diverse websites, uh, listservs. I had people who belonged to different uh, listservs who posted it for me, a call for participation, and then through what's called the snowball method, which is you get one, you get one participant, and then they tell their friends, and then you get more participants right. through there. Um, and I was a little disappointed. I didn't get a huge, uh, a huge sample, although, you know, semi-average for interview research. Um, but it really wasn't ethnically, racially, or uh, class as diverse as I hoped. And mm-hmm. there was nobody who wasn't heterosexual, even though I posted on uh, a wide range of websites. Right. So what do you, what um, do you make of that? Well, I think it's complicated. I think, you know, generally white researchers do have to uh, um, do a lot more work to get more diverse in interview subjects, understandably, because of obviously the history of research and people of color has not been very good. Right. I mean, people of color yeah. have been exploited and uh, killed, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in, at the extreme. So, yes, uh, that said, um, I also think... Um, there are, uh, I, in terms of uh, heterosexual, I, I think uh, to some extent that it that might be might be that there there is research on um, lesbians in particular going through it. Laura Mamo has some has a great has great research on that. Her book Queering Reproduction is excellent. Mm. Um, but I think also there's a sense of it's not that it's um, that I, that there's a narcissistic wound perhaps for a heterosexual uh, who can't reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um, with their partner uh, because there's this narrative in the culture that you're supposed to be able to. Right. And so, whereas if you're uh, transgender or, uh, or with, um, or lesbian or gay, uh, you, you know, ahead of time, you're going to have to involve some form of technology to have a biological baby. Right. Um, which doesn't make it okay or easy to be exploited or treated badly if, in fact, you are within the process of verities. That isn't the point. But it just means that the, the idea of having to use them. That's the only thing I could come up with. 
uh, in part. So heterosexual privilege in a way. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you just, so I know that this was your sample and it was an interview, um, interview research. I mean, what was, was, was there a sort of a shared experience around the sense of being, um, expected to be a compliant consumer of these technologies? Yes. Okay. Oh, across the board, every single woman and man I interviewed talked about, um, well, the time, obviously temporality is important to me. I, I, uh, really think it's the foundation of subjectivity and, uh, regulation and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, time, you're at the mercy of the clinic's time. So all the way through. So everyone talked about that, whether it's a man who has to ejaculate on time in this, in this time period to the point that some, <laughs> one man talked about like the nurse knocking on the door, like, aren't you done yet? Right. Like, so that, that sense of like, wow, that's really a great performance anxiety moment. Right. Um, so there's time in that sense. And also uh, women, all the women had materials from the clinic talking about exactly what I said uh, in, in various ways uh, that once the doctor has control of your cycle, you will get pregnant, which pushes you immediately into IVF in vitro fertilization versus maybe you go to a clinic to find out what's wrong. Maybe you go to a clinic to, um, to only do insemination. Um, and all these things are frowned upon and you're pushed immediately to the big moneymaker, which is IVF. Right. Um, and so and everyone talked about the fact that they were pushed immediately to IVF, even if they didn't want to do IVF initially. Right. Um, and the compliance also for many of them, they had to take part in a multi-hour workshop that was all about IVF, even if they didn't want IVF. But in order to get an insemination, you had to go through the workshop for IVF. So you see how the practices at the clinics um, basically are socializing the patients to be more compliant and more open to IVF no matter what with the assumption that, eh, yeah, okay, we'll waste your money here, but you're going to go for IVF eventually. Right. And Katie, what, what are the, um, I mean, what are some, some of the statistics about IVF and the sort of, I know that there's a lot of language about failure, success, and what that means and how clinics get those numbers. Um, I mean, because it's, you know, it seems to have a pretty high, if we're saying um, failure is connoted by not ha- having a live baby, <laughs> you know, it seems yeah. to be a pretty high failure rate. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, um, Deborah Spar, and certainly I talk about it, uh, she's an economist, and she talks about the fact that um, ARTs and IVF in particular don't follow the market forces in that... Um, they haven't gotten any more successful. So basically it's one in five cycles, one in five attempts or one in five, uh, one in five attempts you're going to can result in a live birth. So about 20% of the time, uh, it's going to succeed, but that doesn't mean that if you try it five times, you will get pregnant. It's, right. it's a, it's a probability thing. And that's what people don't always understand. And, as I talk about in the book, the way uh, patients and doctors talk about it, it's as if with each attempt you're getting closer, when in reality, the majority of the time, 
doctors don't know what's going on. Even if they've identified it as a female or male factor, there's still not a sense of why it may be happening or what to do. Um, So this idea of it, you know, all my participants talked about feeling like they were so close. They were so close. How can they quit? They're so close. One more time and they'll do it. And the doctors would say that, including my doctor. Oh, but we're so close. And we're not close. We're, we know nothing. We know no more right now than we did last month. Right. And we're not any closer. So that sense of um, uh, almost like buying a lottery ticket, like if you buy it five times, by the fifth time, you're sure to win. Well, that's and that not it's, actually... And that it's really not the tech... It, it's not the technology that's failed. It's the woman's body that's failed. Right? Is yes, that sort that's of the narrative? The, that is the narrative, too, yeah. And that's the, that's the idea of uh, there's technologies, and then there's uh, the way they're implemented within, let's face it, a, a pretty misogynist patriarchal system uh, and heteronormative system. And then, so yes, it's the woman's body, which is also part of the ideal business model of it, um, that it's, if, if, if you successfully get pregnant, it's because of the clinic, and you will have to go back if you want another baby, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, some women talk about getting pregnant afterwards um, if they're heterosexual, uh, and some most have to go back to the clinic. So you've got repeat customers. Um, but if you don't get pregnant, it's, it's often considered the idea that the woman's body hasn't submitted appropriately to the technology or to the hormones mm-hmm. or something has gone wrong in the woman's body, but if it's successful, it's because the doctor's the hero. Well, this and of course the doctor. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, just no, like making ahead. the connection, um, not to interrupt you, but you know, it's sort of like the dieting industry too. It's, it's like the, if you're, if the diet quote fails, it's not because there's something flawed about the technology of the diet. There's something flawed about the consumer who's purchased the whatever, Whatever yeah. it is, it seems like it's sort of part of the whole neoliberal lens, um, and this is just another another arena for it. Absolutely, it's a perfect neoliberal uh, patriarchal arrangement where success goes to the clinic, uh, failure goes to the woman's body, as as Karen Throsby, who's a who's a sociologist, has talked about it, um, and the bulk of people who failed keep silent about it, and that maintains this narrative because you only see the successes. You see the successes by the multi-infant strollers right. all over the city sidewalks. Those are successes. Not, not that people don't have twins, um, but the bulk, the majority of twins nowadays are from IVF right. or some form of ARTs, whether it's uh, hormone stimulators, something. Um, so, so you see the successes, but you don't see the failures because people aren't talking about them because there is so much shame, because there is so much victim blaming around the idea that it's the, it's the woman's fault. She, she failed to do something. And of course, there's always something because your behavior is so regulated when you go through, uh, especially IVF, where you're not supposed to twist, you're not supposed to bend over. There's so many behaviors you're not supposed to be doing while the ovaries are being stimulated and then when the eggs are extracted you have to be careful so it's almost like and then when they're reimplanted there's all these ideas about um you know calming down don't be stressed don't be this don't be that so this idea that the the woman's body um needs to be completely altered in order to be a welcoming host for this um embryo 
And if, if she does one thing wrong, that, that embryo is just going to flee the environment. Right. And, um, and obviously, I'm not, I'm not saying stress doesn't matter. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. If they were forms of birth control, women wouldn't get pregnant in rape camps. There are so many areas that women would not get pregnant if stress could really be birth control. Right, exactly. Um, So so on some level, again, yes, it's another way of of women being told they have to control and monitor and patrol their appetites, their movements, their bodies in every way. And yeah, I mean, you can see it flow seamlessly from an eating disorder into your body being experienced through the measurements of your hormones, right? right. Um, you your hormone levels sort of from like, day to day, right? Like that, uh, that the female body is is perfectly primed to be sort of measured and calculated and, and the language comes very easily for most women because they've lived their lives most that way. Um, so yes. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing if you look at blogs, um, because although I did not get as many interviewees as I had hoped, I did look at, I did participate and look at blogs and I also, uh, read a lot of memoirs, Mm. um, to try to uh, get more experiences so that technically I had more participants if one wants to think about it that way. Um, But I wanted to know how people were talking about their experiences. And uh, aside from the fact that there's a complete uh, ignoring of men in the process, um, because everything is focused on the woman and the woman's body, but in the blogs and on in the memoirs and in my interviewees, people talked about their bodies like um, through these numbers. And for many women, their bodies became a set of defective measurements, mm. which is very similar to the way a diet is. You know, your body is, a, is, is uh, too many pounds, too big clothing size. What's your, you know, your hip to waist ratio? You know, all these things that women are supposed to keep right. track of, how many calories yeah. per day. Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, the quantitative uh, experiencing the body through through a different quantitative measurement, but it's... Yeah, it's just fill in the blank. Right. So um, I, I was wondering if you could sort of speak to, so there's, there's that and there's the, that, you know, our bodies are sort of primed um, to be exploited, if you will, within the sort of biomedical industrial complex, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, and then you place this within the context of, you mentioned a couple minutes ago about post nine eleven and sort of global uncertainty. So, and the fetishization of the fetus, can you say a little, and I know that's like some really interesting theorizing that you're doing and placing it in, in this context. Can you say more about that? Sure. Um, in the, book, especially I try to set up the cultural context, which is where I think um, psychoanalysis really needs to integrate more cultural theory to look at um, ways in particular in this, in every instance, but in this instance, in terms of the fetus, um, because there is a way in which uh, in, as I looked at it, uh, the fetus is being used as the embodiment of the future. And you see this also in terms of the CDC's um, preconception care guidelines, which came out in 2006, uh, personhood amendments, which right. really come out again around 2002 um, and 2003. And they've only 
blossomed since then. Um, and, and, and now the idea that unless you're using birth control, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol. And of course the Zika virus is going to take it to the extreme. Again, not that the Zika virus isn't horrifying, not that fetal alcohol syndrome isn't a thing. Of course it is. But it's this idea that the fetus becomes um, the site of all the vulnerability for the culture. Mm. And in protecting it, we can feel heroic and whole and we can displace all our vulnerability onto the fetus. And I do think to a certain extent, that's part of the way the fetus is being used. And it's being used to buttress a a, a sagging patriarchy um, that is is losing its grip, uh, losing its grip in terms of Western domination over the globe, in terms of economic uncertainties, instabilities, in terms of white men being in charge, uh, in terms of, um, you know, that the, the Northern Hemisphere being in charge, and in terms of um, global warming, you know, what Tim Morton talks about as a hyperobject, yeah. this thing that is too big for us to even contemplate what is going on with our planet and what we have done to our planet. And we're completely not only ignoring what we've done, but we're refusing to take accountability for it. And so instead focusing on the fetus as if that's because that's like the only environment we can attempt to control is the uterine environment. Right. It's fascinating. Well, if, when you look at what's going on politically, too, it's like it's all part of the same drama. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. No. Um, yeah, I know. It's like, uh. people, people listen to this podcast all over the world. So we are broadcasting from the United States where, it, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this sort of writ large um, patriarchy um, election season. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I guess that was another quote from the book that was this idea um, that arts have become yet this another neoliberal trope sort of where there are no limits and that yeah. kind of ties in with what the symbolism of the fetus is to like no limits as long as I guess um, it's a kind of a heteronormative white fetus. So there, there's sort of a privileging of that as well. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, because if you, I mean, in the book, especially, I, I try to hold on some level, although I don't play, pay enough attention to personhood amendments I have elsewhere. But the person, while the personhood amendments um, really start, the Unborn Victim of Violence Act really comes into being on some level based on the idea of uh, a pregnant woman being killed by her husband. So can we, wanting the criminal justice system, society, wanting to charge him with two murders, not just of his wife, but of his seven and a half month old fetus. Um, So, but it's been used disproportionately against women who are pregnant. And it's almost always poor women and women of color, including women who have miscarriages and don't, don't go through the proper quote unquote medical procedures after a miscarriage. Mm. And they're blamed for the miscarriage or blamed for even if they miscarry a fetus. I mean, there is a case where a woman has received uh, enormous jail time. I I can't remember exactly, so I don't want to say the times. But um, she's received jail time because she had a miscarriage and didn't try to make the fetus 
she didn't take note of whether the fetus was alive or not after she had her miscarriage. Now, women, when they have a miscarriage, right. are usually kind of in a state of shock. And so she's now in jail. So there's now this policing wow. of women's bodies all over the place. If you, if you drink while you're pregnant, if you, you know, New York City just decriminalized, just said they will not arrest women who drink while, at the bar while they're pregnant. That the bartender has to serve them if they want a beer or, or a yeah. drink. Um, the idea that we had to do that shows this protection of the fetus that is out of control over the rights of the woman. Right. Fetus trumps, the rights of the fetus trump the woman across the board, especially, and now if she's, so you've got this split where poor women and women of color are criminalized through their pregnancies, right. while white women and upper middle class women are expected to have more pregnancies through ARTs. So it's a very, you know, uh, it's a very race classed and heteronormative. Uh, and right. And it's very system. expensive, right? I mean, so it's, it's very expensive. It's six to 14,000 for um, one cycle of ART, one cycle of IVF. And the bulk of the, you know, a lot of it is the procedure, but like, for instance, my insurance, for whatever reason, would cover almost every procedure that wouldn't cover the medications. So you enter in with a clinic saying, hey, good, you know, you've got great insurance, they'll cover everything, except the medications, which can be thousands of dollars per month. So you've got this, it's so incredibly expensive. And people who have money, as well as people who are bankrupting themselves, uh, either taking out additional mortgages or, um, you know, depleting their retirement funds for a baby because they are paying for hope. And that's the other thing that's important. Again, with the high failure rate and the low success rate, you really are paying for hope. And that in itself becomes what I call kind of a confusion of tongues, because with, uh, which is from frenzy. Because within all this, women are expected to uh, not mourn, women and men, uh, but couples aren't supposed to mourn the loss. They're given absolutely no time. And when I say no time, I mean every participant talked about being in the stirrups, being told they had a miscarriage, and within a minute being told we need to know now if you're going to try again next month because we have to schedule you. We have to start scheduling you now. So there's no time. The first sign of blood that says you're having a miscarriage is also the first day of the next cycle. There is no time to mourn or even reflect reflect on what you're going to do. Or make any meaning of the experience whatsoever. Right. And, of course, within all this, I was also stunned that there was no discussion of traumatic repetition around sexual abuse. Right. I mean, this is a procedure where almost every, every day somebody is up your vagina, and it's usually not your doctor mm-hmm. if you've chosen a doctor. And I had a participant who, who knew she had a history of sexual abuse. She specifically chose a female doctor, and she never saw her female doctor in two years of treatment. And she dealt with constant flashbacks after, based on that based on the fact that she kept having a different doctor for every procedure and all the procedures were up her vagina. And it was just such a traumatic repetition of being held down, being in the stirrups. And yes, she chose this, but as we all know, the unconscious isn't logical. Mm-hmm. And there was no, and in the literature I looked at, there was, I was stunned to find no mention of traumatic repetition when every woman talked about it being, um, a very invasive and abusive, in, in some ways, procedure. So in that sense, also, I, I talk about it as a confusion of tongues, as right. friends with confusion of tongues. 
Right. And it's totally um, normalized, right? So there's a clinic setting. And I think you talked about this when I heard you speak is just sort of the, the scene in the clinic itself. Um, yeah. That it's, it's kind of like a, not a factory, but you know, but the, there's yeah. kind of like a mechanization that a process that people go through. And so, and that becomes normalized. Totally. I mean, one of my participants talked about, and they all kind of described the same thing, um, that it's often standing room only, that uh, you have your blood work done between 7 and 9 a.m., and you cannot be later than that, no matter what. And if you are late, you are shamed and told that you must not care enough mm. about getting pregnant to drop everything to, right. get, to get there on time. And it's usually standing room only, so you're standing for potentially hours waiting because that's the other thing the irony is you have to get there by 7 30 but your blood may not be drawn until 10 so this idea so um you have to be willing to literally give hours each day of a month in case you need to go in for blood tests or um or hormone shots or or vaginal ultrasounds to make sure your ovaries aren't being overstimulated Mm -hmm. which is which can destroy the ovary um if not you. Uh, so there's, there's all this in the clinic. And then one of them, one of my participants described going in for a procedure where she was literally in a line of gurneys in the hall where women were lying down um, on the gurneys in, uh, you know, their uh, gowns uh, waiting for some procedure. And she said there were at least eight gurneys in a row. And of course, more women waiting to get on the gurney. And she felt like it was the handmaid's tale. And it, indeed, I, it that's does exactly what like. I was just thinking about. I was like, sounds like hand, handmaid's tale. Yeah. Yes. And they, and they botched her surgery. She said she was wanted to make a joke. I have a quote, obviously, in the book where she said, you know, I want to make a joke like you do remember why I'm here. And they put the mask on her so fast. She couldn't even say hello to the doctors in the surgery in the, in the uh, operating area. And in fact, they botched her surgery and it took them a year to, for her to recover from that surgery, wow. have the next surgery, recover from that surgery so that she could try again. So that was a full year. And in reproductive time, a year is an enormous amount of time. You may right. not think of it, but um, it is. Right. It's, a, it's an enormous, that's the other way in which I look at time because time changes once you're in the clinic. I mean, there's a hurry up and wait uh, you have to get to the clinic right away, and then you wait for an extended period of time. Yet, if you're not thinking about it every month, you're not trying hard enough. And the other thing that ARTs do is, um, as, as Sarah Franklin's research and my research also showed, women who were just trying to figure out what went wrong end up, the procedures themselves create the desire for the baby. So even if you come in, understanding that you probably won't get a baby, but you want to try everything you can. By the time, the way, the way the whole setup of ARTs is that each cycle creates more desire for a baby mm-hmm. so that instead of, instead of creating the conditions uh, to forestall regret, you actually create the conditions for more regret mm-hmm. and more pain and remorse. So uh, it's all that also well, is a weird. And you said sort of shame and self-blame as well and this kind of yeah. secrecy that people go into who have not been able to to get pregnant. You know, yes. there's no space for that. There is no place for that. Yeah. I mean, 
And especially for women, there's still no place for women not to have children. I mean, it's beginning to shift. I I can see more narratives in the culture about child-free, whatever you want to call it, women. But for the most part, even our case studies always end with, and the health of the patient is shown because they had a baby, whether they're male or female. Uh, they settled down, they had a baby, they had a family. So this normativity of right. a family and the idea that having a child, um, all women have a maternal instinct and having a child is normalizing for women. Whereas if you don't have a child, you have to justify your choice or right. circumstances. Right. Or even the language that we use, child-free, you know, it's like that, yeah. it's sort of, sort of the, you know, the basis that, that we, we judge people on. And there's kind of like this compulsory parenthood that you talk about in the book or some of the authors talk about that's part of that same syndrome. It's like, um, there's no other space for generativity. Well, there are spaces obviously for generativity, but that, that one is privileged by psychoanalysis, I would say. Um, and I think that, we have to really move. I mean, and I think people are speaking, you know, Rebecca, Rebecca Harrington and Adam Kaplan, they're yeah. people I've heard really speaking to that um, more and more, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely something you, you, you take away from your book. Right. And a lot of that comes from queer theory that have, that have um, Lee Edelman, Jack Halverson, and uh, Carol Dinshaw have talked about uh, repro futurity and mm-hmm. repro, you know, repro normativity and this idea of reproduction being the um, the meaning of life, the location of happiness, uh, all this. Well, and, uh, and the that location of developmental, anything developmental is in connection to reproduction. You know, that's yeah. the language that we have. Right. Until we right. until we're able to queer it and look at it a different way. Right. And and I think the thing I write about that I think is uh, we really need to hold on to is the danger of ARTs. Uh, I mean, Laura Mam- Mamo also talks about this, but the idea that ARTs now makes it impossible. Everybody, it's not just that, um, of course, it democratizes reproduction to a certain extent. So if you're in, if you are lesbian, gay, transgender, um, you you now have a fighting shot at a biological child mm-hmm. within a partnership. That is absolutely true, and that's fantastic about ART. That is great. the The downside is that now um, it's being as ARTs are being produced within a culture of reprofuturity and fetishizing the fetus, nobody has an excuse now for not having a child. Right. And there's this assumption that everybody if that the degree to which you're willing to go to get a child is somehow equal to your desire for a child. So if you're not willing to pull out all the stops, you must not want a baby bad enough. And so, and that's the other thing I found. If women wanted to protect themselves from maybe excessive hormones, then they were considered not willing to do what it took to have a baby, um, which isn't, or not wanting a baby bad enough, which isn't uh, yeah. necessarily a good thing right. to want a baby so bad that right. you're willing to damage your body. Like these are things that we shouldn't be promoting as healthy or good or a sign of femininity or a sign of healthy um, ma- maternal behavior. Right. Um, you know that. Uh, you know that's a that's a really big problem. 
Yeah. Um, so you, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on the, um, cause you talk about other technologies that arise that have arisen or are consequences of this proliferation of ARTs. And one is the, um, the NICU, neonatal intensive yeah. care units. Can you talk about how, how, and I, I think it was, um, one of the chapters, and I'm, I'm forgetting the author, I'm sorry, Katie, who wrote that oh, particular no. chapter, yeah. but just an incredibly moving account of um, women having babies prematurely, so-called prematurely, and what goes on in these environments. So this is maybe, you know, seven months after becoming pregnant, and some of these pregnancies um, require incredible intervention when the baby's born. Yeah, no, uh, Zena, uh, Steinberg and Susan Kramer are, um, they, they authored, uh, the chapter, uh, called, called the shadow side of ART. Right. Mm-hmm. And they've been consultants in the NICU for a long time and they've written various pieces. And this chapter is a beautiful, beautiful, um, obser- you know, uh, reflection on their work. And they bring in a lot of the issues that, uh, parents in the NICU deal with. And one of the so the one of the consequences of ARTs, obviously NICUs exist not just for ART babies, um, but high risk pregnancy wards and neonatal ICUs are two of the most expensive units in hospitals, and they're also two of the fastest growing units mm. in hospitals, and they're fastest growing in part because of ARTs because women are carrying multiples, and multiples have inherent issues. Uh, in that they're, they're usually, um, nowadays, uh, maybe induced early, um, C-section. There, there's a lot of things around multiples, um, that are, are an issue. Also, we don't know why, but often babies who are created through ARTs come early. So they may be, now, not always, but they can be, um, uh, premature. So there's a need for more technology. And again, we don't know why, which also points to the idea that, uh, and I'm going to use code, I'm going to use coded language. So I, I just need to just say it. If we take a sperm that we don't and force it into an egg, which is what ARTs are becoming on some level there, there's a way in which they sometimes treat the egg to soften it so that the sperm, even if the sperm isn't great, can find its way in, or they or shoot it in with a syringe. Um, so that if you if you try to create um, the conditions for maybe a not great egg or maybe a not great sperm or maybe a not great combo to come together, that maybe there are more things that we need to look at in the process of reproduction that we're not understanding. Yeah. Because even when doing that, even when we have an embryo that we think is going well, it still is coming out premature. So what is going on? So maybe there's something in here that we're again that uh, reductionism isn't the answer. But um, that said, there's a there's a lot there's um more need for neonatal ICUs because of this. And what uh, Zena and Susan found was that there's all these couples in particular and women who um, have been through perhaps years of IVF and then they finally get pregnant. And then they have a tenuous pregnancy, and then they're often at 24, 25 weeks. So we're talking not even seven months, right. uh, barely viable 
And how do you deal with this? Because they're in shock all the way through. And as we talked about, they haven't had a chance to reflect on the losses of each month when they didn't get pregnant through ARTs or IVF. And then all of a sudden they are pregnant and the miracle baby um, then is premature, perhaps um, has a lot of developmental issues. Now, not always, but might have a lot of developmental issues. And how do you prepare for that? Especially for people who may have bankrupted themselves to get the baby. So there's a lot of issues that aren't talked about. And again, it's not that um, every ART baby is going to be in the NICU, but many are. And there isn't. So again, there's no critical engagement with ARTs. Um, It's all based on hope and marketing hope and not the reality that, um, you know, most 40 to 50 percent of people who walk in a clinic door are not going to have a pregnancy. Right. So Katie, as an analyst, and I'm thinking about my own practice and working with women and, and transgender, not necessarily, um, doesn't necessarily follow along that particular gender binary of people who want to have biological babies. Um, as a clinician, as an analyst, is this, your work is sort of like, I feel like I'm holding this inside now as I listen and create more space for these ambiguities, for, for loss, for mourning. Um, you know, I guess I'm asking about counter-transference because sometimes there is the, you know, you're sitting with this incredible hopefulness um, with a person who's going through this procedure. So I, I don't know what my question is specifically, but maybe you could comment on that. Just kind of like, like in, in the actual therapy, how, how can a clinician kind of hold all this? Yeah. Uh, It's not easy. And I don't necessarily have answers. I mean, I think, There's, I don't um, think I have a good question a, either. It's just something on my mind. No, no, no. That's it. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's totally, you know, it goes back to this idea of trying to hold the ambiguity and trying to create space for reflection. And um, that historically we haven't been allowing a lot of reflection around choices to have babies or not to have babies and to have both those choices be okay. Or, you know, one could say to really question why people do want to have babies. Uh, question it as equally as we question why people don't want to have babies instead of just pathologizing one side. The other thing is um, uh, there, there is a chapter in the book uh, and some discussion, a case study uh, that describes holding all this um, kind of tsunami of emotion and counter-transference yeah. um, that's written by Tracy Simon and uh Diane Ehrentaft writes a lot about uh, working with transgender families and what it's like in terms of the countertransference and the families that are then created. Um, But in general, I mean, I think the most important thing is holding the space within ourselves to understand there can be ambivalence and to help patients speak their ambivalence. Because, I mean, the other thing is everybody, you know, the majority of pregnancies in the United States are accidental still. (laughs) So there's a lot of ambivalence even under the best conditions about having babies. So if you have to renew your decision to have a baby every month um, because that accident isn't happening or it can't happen for whatever reason, then that ambivalence needs to have a space of 
of articulation yeah. and expression, um, not so that you don't engage with the ARTs, but so that you do so in a uh, educated way that is healthy for you, right. whatever that is. Right. And so, and also helping to question the culture that is reinforcing this idea that right. women have to have babies to be healthy and men fatherhood is the best thing ever. You know, it's a great all, parenthood. I'm not downing parenthood. Right. It's just that it isn't the only avenue towards fulfillment right. and happiness. Right. And right now the culture is casting it as such, as at such. least for right. a select uh, population. And of course, again, engaging in it is, is uh, the racism and the classism right. and the misogyny involved in it. Yeah. Well, um, I, this has been amazing, and we only have a couple more minutes left because we do our 50-minute, um, we hold the 50-minute yeah. frame on this podcast. Yes. So, Katie, um, I, I asked you to pick something to read to the listeners from your book um, so that we can yeah. hear you writing in your own voice, and maybe we could end with that. Okay. I will uh, read the last paragraph um, in the book okay. um, where I try to open it up more. Uh, to um, the culture. Um, okay. Although I pose these questions, I too am filled with uncertainty, ambivalence, and conflict about how best to engage and hold these depths of subjectivities and complex relations within the clinical space. But beginning to link complicated desires and motivations for ARTs with the contradictory experiences and psychological, physical, environmental, and global consequences of engaging with them is a necessary start. Perhaps the goals of therapy are to stand in the collective spaces of intolerable and overwhelming grief, contradiction, ambivalence, and annihilation, and nothingness. In so doing, we become more aware of how the technologies of ARTs as objects, quote, cast their spells, unquote, uh, from Timothy Morton, on human bodies, rendering them more and more pliable and dependent upon their interventions, in part as a way of avoiding these nearly intolerable affective experiences. Here, the analyst can function as a link, not only to the unbearable void of nothingness from which we fled as infants, but also to the cultural body, our surroundings, and the inevitable and potential futures we have made possible through our narcissistic greed and destruction and our beauty and creativity. The analyst then functions to disassemble the dissociations that manufacture splits between affects, bodies, objects, worlds. In so doing, humans lose their fantasy of dominance and transcendence over awe, the gain in intimacy, a caring and enlivening sense of being with that can buffer the terrors of annihilation with faith in ongoing connections, thus differentiation through times. That's amazing. That's beautiful. And that really addresses sort of the question that I was trying to formulate um, there. So thank you so much for your time, Katie. And to the listeners, um, we'll have a link to her book on our website and an opportunity for comments if any of you would care to comment or ask a question after the interview is posted to our website thank you so much thank this you. was great thank you katie and um saying goodbye and looking forward to the next interview on new books and psychoanalysis bye everybody 